Now we come to our passage this morning, Luke chapter 13, uh, verses 10 to 17. And if you have an ESV, you can find that on page 872 in most editions of the ESV. So Luke chapter 13, uh, verses 10 to 17. Now he, that's Jesus, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on a Sabbath. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. So may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of the word. So back in 1986, the NBA, the National, the National Basketball Association, hosted the first ever three-point competition. This came in conjunction with the All-Star Game. So this competition draws the best long-range shooters, the best uh, people who could make three-point shots in the NBA. No, no, a man named Larry Bird won that competition. But before he did, he walked into the locker room where the other players were getting ready. Uh, they were you know, tying their shoes and uh, getting ready to go out and, and do this three-point competition. He walks in to the locker room and he asked, who's playing for second? Now, for those of you who don't know who Larry Bird is, uh, he was a longtime Boston Celtic, and he is one of the all-time great players in the NBA and one of the all-time great three-point players. Uh, shooters in the history of the NBA. He was used to playing in Boston in front of huge crowds. He's a three-time NBA champion. Uh, and the way he tells the story is because of this, because he's used to playing in front of these big crowds and he was a little bit older, he wasn't really nervous. He was just out there to have fun. And so he walks in and he asks, who's playing for second? Not realizing that some of the younger players, the younger guys in the crowd uh, in, in the locker room, weren't used to playing in front of those crowds. So he didn't realize how much tension, how much nervousness they were feeling. So the locker room stays quiet. And Larry Bird went out and won that first three-point competition. And in fact, he also won in 1987 and 1988. So of course, we can look at that and we can see uh, see it for what it is. It's arrogance. Maybe it, Maybe he didn't mean for it to be quite as arrogant as it came across, but Larry Bird was a man who was used to winning. He showed up in that locker room and he told everyone exactly why he was there. He showed up to win. And then he backed that claim up. He told everyone what he was there to do, and then he went and showed them what he was there to do. Now, without the arrogance, without the sin and, and the vaingloriousness that, that Larry Bird and so many other professional athletes 
carry themselves with. Jesus in our passage is showing us why he came to earth, and then he's telling us why he came. And that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, We're going to see Jesus first show us why he came to earth and then tell us. Now, there are lots of connections in our passage, lots of uh, places in scripture that relate, that, that influence that we can look at and study. So we're going to look at some of those, but our big overall structure is Jesus is showing us why he came, and then he's telling us why he came. So our passage begins with a scene that we've come to expect from Jesus. By now in the book of, of Luke, we've seen him uh, stop and teach many times. And so he's teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath. We're not told exactly where this is or what town it is, uh, but it's reasonable to think that a crowd would have followed him. Crowds were following him a lot by this point. And so Jesus becomes that, that guest preacher. He shows up at a synagogue and either, uh, this is important to note too, he either would have had to have been invited to come and speak or he showed up and this, this ruler of the synagogue would have uh, needed to allow him to teach. And so uh, first I want to look at, at the characters in this scene this morning. And so we have this, uh, this ruler of the synagogue who would have had to either invited or allowed Jesus to come and speak. Um, and it doesn't seem that he's a Pharisee. Oftentimes in these scenes where Jesus is confronting uh, tradition and laws and, and things about the Sabbath, he's talking to a Pharisee. Uh, but this individual doesn't appear to be one because he's never called a Pharisee. Luke is very careful in, in other scenes to point out uh, whether someone was a Pharisee or one of the priests or something like that. And this just seems to be a man who's appointed uh, to be a shepherd to, to that local synagogue, kind of like Matthew is for us. He's our pastor. That's that same uh, idea here is that this man, this ruler of the synagogue is that, that local under shepherd. He's someone charged with, with leading the people spiritually in this small town or, or community. Now, it's also important to note, we obviously, we know, we know Jesus. Um, we know Jesus is here. Uh, and he's not a Levite. Jesus didn't share priestly duties here. Um, and so he wasn't just automatically a priest who was invited to speak. Um, and we know that Christ fills a couple of offices. Our, our confession tells us that he uh, fills the office of a prophet and priest and king. And we see him in, in those different offices throughout the time. And so when we see him uh, here teaching, he's, he's really functioning the office of, of a prophet. He's revealing God's will to us. And so in another typical fashion, we see someone who needs to be healed. We see this woman bent over. She's come on the Sabbath to hear Jesus teach perhaps be healed. We're told in verse 11, if you look with me, that she has a uh, a disabling spirit. Now, whether this just means that she was sickly or uh, whether there was some unclean spirit or a demon that was uh, possessing her, we're we're not told. Uh, We don't know for certain. We don't see an unclean spirit leave her like we do in other exorcisms. But what we do see clearly is that this infirmity, this disease, uh, is the result of spiritual warfare one way or another. So if you look down at verse 16 with me, so what Jesus says about this woman, this daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, she's been tied up. She's been in bondage. She's been 
succumbing to this infirmity for 18 years and somehow some spiritual warfare is at play here. So these are our, our main characters, our main uh, players that we see. So we have the people set, we have the synagogue ruler, we have Jesus, and we have this infirmed woman. So Jesus sees this woman and he calls her over. He calls her over and he speaks to her first and tells her, woman, you are freed from your disability. Then he lays hands on her and immediately she was healed and she stood upright. So in these two short verses, Christ is demonstrating why he came. So let's break this down a little bit. First, Christ sees her and calls her. And in some way, this is how salvation works. We are called. This is the first kind of stage of salvation, if you will. We are called. The, the confession calls this, the chapter is effectual calling. And as I started studying the, the Westminster Confession a while ago, I was a bit surprised to learn that there's no chapter just called salvation. There's no section that says, if you pray the sinner's prayer, that's how you get saved. But what the confession does is it pulls out this teaching from Jesus here and, and many other places in scripture that says salvation begins with a call. And then God has to un- enable us to answer that call. So Jesus first calls this woman over and then he speaks to her. And it's, I think it's very important. It's very vital that he speaks to her as well. So, so how does God enable us to answer that call? Because we're dead in our trespasses and sins as, as we're told in Romans. So how can a dead person answer a call? They, they can't. So part of it is, is we hear God's word. The hearing of scripture is, is the first part of that. And here in our scene, Jesus, the, the capital W, word of God, is calling this woman, telling her that she is freed. So how are we made aware that God is calling us? Well, we hear the word. We read it. We, we hear someone else preaching. We, we hear the word of God. So this woman heard Jesus and she comes to him, but she's still not better immediately. This woman uh, hears the word of God call her, but then Jesus lays hands on her. The healing power of God comes through Jesus and she stands upright. For the first time in 18 years, she's able to stand up straight, to straighten her back. We are, we're called by the word. We're called by Jesus, and then we, we hear the word, and it's the power of God, the spirit of God that enlivens us, quickens us, and enables us to answer that call. So, so Jesus calls this woman. She stands up straight, and that's how we all are, aren't we? We all kind of relate to this woman in some way. We're all bent. We're all broken by our sin, and as I said, we're, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And unless God calls us and enables us to answer that call, we can do nothing. We're not able to save ourselves. We're not able to wake ourselves up, to come back to life. But how do we trust that God can do this? How do we trust that Jesus really can save us? Well, because he shows us. 
He shows us his power and might. He shows us by healing a woman bent over for 18 years. He shows us by walking on water. He shows us by raising people from the dead. He shows us his, his awesome power with, with mighty works like these. But he also shows us his compassion. He shows his compassion for us by uh, picking up a child, by speaking to those who have been cast out socially. And he shows us his compassion by laying hands on a sick woman. So while our, our passage is a typical one where Jesus is teaching and crowds are around and uh, someone wanting to be healed, while well, that's something we've come to expect to see in the life of Jesus at this point, we don't often see Jesus lay on hands. It wasn't terribly unusual to see him touch people, but it's not something we see him do laying on hands. We don't see that very often. We don't see that all the time. And if you remember the the scene with the centurion, the centurion's servant is sick and uh, he sends someone to go speak to Jesus to ask Jesus to heal this servant. Uh, Jesus says, I will go. And there's no need for it. The centurion says, no, there's no need for you to come. I too am, am a man under authority. I say to one, come and he comes and to another go and he goes. And Jesus uh, praises the centurion's faith because he knows how powerful and capable Jesus is. Jesus had no need to go to the centurion's servant, and he had no need to lay hands on this woman. But he does so and offers her compassion. He offers compassion for her physically, but he has compassion on sinners as well. So Jesus is showing us that he came to give us hope. He came to give us salvation and, and to give us comfort. But he doesn't just stop there. Jesus doesn't just uh, show us. In the next section that we're going to look at, Jesus is telling us why he came. And it, it begins, this, this situation begins with the ruler of the synagogue, upset, indignant by Jesus' actions. How dare Jesus heal on the Sabbath? How dare he work on this day set aside for rest and set aside for worship. So listen to what this, this ruler of the synagogue says in verse 14. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. This ruler is indignant. He's upset because he thinks Jesus is subverting the Sabbath, subverting his authority or ignoring the laws, ignoring the traditions for the Sabbath. But if you notice who this man addresses, he doesn't even speak directly to Jesus. Who does he address? Look back again. He addressed the people. He didn't speak directly to Jesus, but he tries to get the crowd on his side by appealing to the law. But what were those laws? What were those regulations that he's, he's appealing to? And Jesus is going to address this next. Look next at what Jesus says to him. He says, you hypocrites, do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And so, yes, that was perfectly legal. Go and care for your animal. Untie them, lead them to water to drink, but don't heal a person. So I wanted to know exactly what 
Jesus was, was referencing and what, what the laws were around the Sabbath. And, and so one of the commentators listed a few, and I found uh, some others online. In fact, I found uh, this collection, the 39 categories of types of work that's restricted on the Sabbath for uh, a proper practicing Jew. So these are some of those restrictions. Uh, the female camel may go out with its nose ring. The Libyan donkey may go out with its bridle. Uh, the horse with its chain and all beasts that wear a chain may be led by that chain. And these things may be sprinkled without being removed. In other words, if you, if you lead an animal to water by a chain, you can take it out by the chain. You can, it's okay to carry the chain. And if it gets wet, you don't have to remove it because if you removed it, you'd be lifting something and you weren't allowed to, to carry things. But uh, so you, so if it gets wet, you don't have to remove it. Um, a donkey may go out with its saddlecloth, as long as that saddlecloth was fastened before the Sabbath. So if it's not tied on tight on the day of the Sabbath, uh, you, can't, you can't tighten it, you can't take the donkey out with, with the saddlecloth. Um, a camel may not go out with a rag tied to its tail. I don't know. The donkey may not go out with a bell, even though it's plugged. So if you, if you keep track of your donkey by putting a bell around its neck, uh, you can't take that out on the Sabbath because you don't want people making noise and people would be distracted from worship. But even if you plug it, you put something up inside that bell to keep it from making noise, you still can't take it out. In other words, there were explicit details for any way you could possibly imagine interacting with your animal on the Sabbath, but still you were not allowed to heal someone on the Sabbath day. Now, I want, to be, I want to be very careful here. I don't want to present these restrictions or, or restrictions in general uh, as, as without merit because restrictions uh, help guard us. They help protect the things that we think are sacred and believe are sacred. Uh, that's why restrictions ultimately, I think, get made is they, um, they help guard our hearts. And so part of these restrictions came uh, during the time of Isaiah. Uh, this was an issue during Isaiah's time. And in, in chapter 58, uh, God speaks to the prophet Isaiah and he tells Israel that if they turn back from doing their own pleasure on the Sabbath and honor the Sabbath, that the people will find delight in the Lord and he will provide for them. Now, this is certainly an issue. The Sabbath is an issue that God is uh, very concerned about. And now there are, uh, Isaiah goes on and there are some uh, more details that, that we could look into, but suffice it to say that this is a very important command, that the fourth commandment in, in the Ten Commandments is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But even then, even though it's one of the Ten Commandments, we, we tend to see it different somehow. Uh, many of us, many Christians, we tend to see the Sabbath as uh, separate. It's not quite the same. And so if we ask ourselves whether, um, whether it's always wrong everywhere at all time to worship another God, we, I think we would all agree that it is always sinful to worship another God. Now, if we, if we ask ourselves, is it wrong to murder? We would all agree that it's sinful to murder. And if we ask ourselves whether uh, it's always wrong to steal or to commit adultery or to make idols or to lie or to covet, we would all agree that those are sinful all the time. So the question before we move on, the question I want to pose is, 
is why do we treat the Sabbath differently sometimes? Why do we treat it different than the other commandments? Why is it okay sometimes to overlook honoring and keeping the Sabbath? Now I ask that because I, I think it's clear that Jesus himself is taking the Sabbath quite seriously here. Now, as I said, sometimes specific regulations are helpful and help uh, can help protect us uh, and can protect something that, that we find sacred. Uh, but regulations can't fix people's hearts. So here in our passage, I think uh, Jesus is telling the leader and those with him that, that they're missing the point. The point is not uh, that, that you, it's okay to take your animal out. That's not the point. Their, their regulations have led them away from the purpose of the Sabbath. So you can take care of the needs of your animal, but you, you can't be bothered to help your neighbor in need. That is what Christ is driving at. That's why he's telling them he came to earth. Look back with me at verse 16. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, ought she not be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Because this is why Jesus came, isn't it? To free his people from the bond of, of slavery to sin and to Satan. This is what Christ has come for, and this is what he's telling these people in these few short verses. And this is what he's been telling the people since his earthly ministry began. If we go all the way back to Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus in this similar situation. It's a Sabbath day. So he goes to the synagogue in his, in his hometown of Nazareth, and the scroll of Isaiah is brought to him. So listen to what Jesus uh, chooses to read from Isaiah concerning himself. So Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Is this not what Jesus is telling us here in this passage? He enters the conversation with the synagogue ruler, confronting these ideas about the Sabbath. He came to set the captives free, though. But there's a warning here for us, I think, as well. Uh, and as, uh, just as we should and ought to uh, relate to the woman bent and broken in need of a Savior, bound up by our sin in need of the Word of God and the healing and the enlivening of the Spirit, just as we ought to relate to her in that way, sometimes we have to admit as Christians that we're a lot like this leader of the synagogue. Now there's a way that things are done and good and proper Christians just don't do certain things. You know how it goes. Good Christians don't drink alcohol. Real Christians don't listen to secular music. Real Christians don't, uh, don't, 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 don't. And it becomes this whole negative thing. Christians are, known sometimes because of the negative, what we don't do. But Jesus here, he takes this passage, he takes this teaching on the Sabbath, and he turns it from a negative to a positive. It's not about what you're not allowed to do. It's about what we are called to do. 
getting back to the, the confession, the Westminster calls it a positive, moral, and perpetual command. It's positive. It's not about what you can't do. It's about what we ought to be doing. It's a moral. It's for good. It's for worship. It's for doing good. And it's perpetual. This is supposed to keep going. Positive, moral, perpetual command. It's not about what animals you can and can't take out. It's about acts of mercy, acts of kindness. It's about rest. And ultimately, it's about worshiping God. That's what the day is for. And if that's what the Sabbath is about, then Jesus is telling us here that he came for moments just like this with this woman. He came for moments to heal. He came to set captives free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what Jesus is telling us here. But notice, though, how this passage ends. In verse 17, as he, Jesus, said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. The people rejoice. They rejoice in what Jesus is doing. And that's the same response of the woman. She was healed, and she immediately turns to worship God. Jesus confronts this wrong idea about the Sabbath. He heals a woman. She rejoices. She glorifies God. And then the people rejoice. So Jesus has taken this opportunity, not just to teach and, and to, to show us what the Sabbath is about, but then he leads people into what the Sabbath really is about. People are worshiping just as what the Sabbath is about. So when you look at your life, when you look at, at the sin and, and your need of a savior and, and the bondage that, that we know we've been in, rejoice because you have a savior who's calling you and enabling you to answer that call. And the response to that is to rejoice. Or if when you look at your lives and you realize that, that perhaps you're a lot more like that synagogue leader and that you need to repent of your own pride or, or of equating your own preferences, your own traditions, equating that with, with the ultimate truth of the gospel. Either way, Jesus is calling you to repent and believe. Repent of those sins and believe that Jesus can free you because that is why he came. He came to set the captives free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Won't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we get used to our chains. We get used to being in bondage. and We become numb to the feeling of, of sin. And we need you to, to quicken us, enliven us, show us our sin that we may repent and believe that Jesus came uh, to do what he said he came to do. Help us to believe that Jesus uh, is able to set us free. Because he is, because he shows us. He shows us through his healings, and then he tells us. That's what he's been telling us. So, Father, help us to, uh, to believe. Help us to repent. And we thank you for your son. We thank you for him coming to earth to do what he said he came to do. So, Father, we ask all this in the most holy name of Jesus. Amen.
And now hear God's good word for you, his benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face 